pretty cool, eh? So good morning. It's uh, great to be with you, whether you're here live at Botany, whether you are uh, watching in Hastings, kia ora to you guys, whether you're watching or listening to this on the internet, or uh, even to those of you in uh, Nepal uh, looking at this on our Botany Life uh, app, Jemasi, to you as well. It's awesome to be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't recognise me, my name's Brad. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. <laughs> Normally I'm on a T-shirt, um, but after watching that video a few times, I actually felt like wearing an, uh, an ironed shirt today. So I got the ironing board out this morning uh, in our bedroom, and Rochelle's like, what are you doing? That's normally not what I do. But anyway, for those of you who aren't sure who I am, um, it is me. I'm just wearing a shirt instead of a T-shirt today because I felt like it. Stunning photos, aren't there? I was, I was interested in the amount of laughter that came from all of us, and it seemed to me that the older the couple are now, the more laughs there were because we've changed so much over the years. I was a little, you know, a little hurt by the amount of laughter at my glasses. I, noticed, I did notice that, but um, I guess I'll just have to get over that. They were cool at the time, all right? It's just that times change, so there you go. We are looking today at... Um, at spouses and at marriage, and every couple who were featured on there, whether they've been married uh, 50 years, as both my parents and my parents-in-law have been, or whether you've been married just a few months or a year or two, you will know that it's one thing to look wonderful on your wedding day. It is quite another thing to make a marriage look that beautiful over many, many years. And that's why the... uh, Bible's instructions to us on marriage are so incredibly important for us to take note of. And today, as we go through this letter in the New Testament called 1 Peter, we're coming to Peter's instructions to us on marriage and what marriage is meant uh, to look like and feel like. And so if you've got a Bible with you, either a paper Bible or your phone app or whatever that is, I'd like you to come with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7 together. We're in the series in this letter that the Apostle Peter wrote. He was one of Jesus' main followers, and he wrote this letter, as we've seen, to a bunch of churches in what we would now call northern Turkey. And he's writing to them specifically to encourage them that no matter what, encourage them to live really good lives before God. And so that others around them would be drawn towards the God they have. So the middle part of the letter where we are now, the key passage was earlier in verse 12, 11 and 12 of chapter 2, where he said, live such good lives among people who don't know God yet, that even though they persecute you or maybe may laugh at you, hopefully they will see your good deeds, see the way you live life, and be drawn towards glorifying God and coming to faith as well. And so we are looking at this passage on marriage in the context of that overall command Peter's giving, to live an attractive life, a beautiful life before those who don't yet know God. So specifically now, he's coming to this issue of marriage, of living good lives as spouses. So let me read it with you, um, and then we're going to jump into this passage. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Wives... In the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. 
Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's eyes. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. And you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. All right, it is a doozy of a passage, isn't it? Hey, I noticed a sharp intake of breath at verse 1 when we hit that wonderful word submit. And then some stuff about beauty. I think I noticed another intake of air. And then gentle and quiet spirits, like a clucking of the tongue, I noticed at that point. And then we get to Sarah obeying Abraham and calling him her Lord. It's like starry night. What are we going to do with that? And then, of course, you come to verse 7, and there's a weaker partner comment as well. So we're doing well, aren't we? Really? So let me do my best to dive into this passage and help us understand it. One of the other things you'll notice, by the way, is there's a slight inequality in the number of verses here. So we're going to look at wives and husbands, and what you immediately notice, don't you? How many women notice that? You know, there's six verses to wives and one to husbands. All right, it's because the husband's attention span couldn't handle anything more than one verse. All right? Now, it's because there's a particular context going in that we'll dive into and explain in a little bit that's quite important. That meant actually Peter had more to say in this passage to, to wives than he did to husbands. Actually, if you go to Ephesians 5, where Paul teaches on this, he gives more time to the command to husbands than the verses he gives to wives. So it kind of balances out a little bit. So, so don't you know, get bent, too bent out of shape by that. Right. What I want to do is I want to pull out three key principles for each gender today. So I'm going to start with wives, because that's the way that Peter begins, and I want to give three key principles to wives about marriage, and I want to give a corresponding three principles to husbands. So the first key principle is that one that we struggle with. All right? The first command that opens this whole section to is, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your husbands. Now, what we need to understand here is that Peter is not introducing a new word or a new concept at this point in the letter. This is actually what Peter's been arguing all the way through this middle section of his letter. He's already used this command twice already. Back in chapter 2, verse 13, writing to all the believers, he said, all of you submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And then he came to verse 18, when he started to deal with households and work relationships and said, and slaves, in reverent fear, submit yourselves to your masters. Now he comes to marriage and he's using the same command again, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. So this is not a, a something that he's throwing only at uh, wives in marriage. This is actually an overriding key idea in his letter here, that he is calling all Christians in different stations and different relationships to submit to those particular institutions that God has put into place. And you'll notice that each time it is submit yourselves. So this is not the idea that you are being forced to submit or someone is telling you to do that. This is something that each of these groups are to do in response to God. You notice that? So submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. 
Slaves, submit yourselves in reverent fear to God. And in fact, that comes through this time too. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And you'll notice in verse 2, if you drop your eyes down, um, the NIV translates the end of verse 2 when they see the purity and reverence of your life. Actually, I don't like the way the NIV and actually most English translations do that because the, the word that's reverent in our Bible right there is actually the same phrase as uh, verse 18 in chapter 2. It's in reverent fear. So in other words, whenever we are called, whoever we are, and whatever relationship it is at that point in the Scriptures, whenever any of us are called to submit, we submit ourselves, it's not coerced, and we do it out of um, our awe and gratitude to God for who he is and what he's done in our lives. So it takes the sting, I think, out of that a little bit to realize that. The reality is that all of us are called to be submissive kinds of people. So when you come, for example, to the book of James, chapter 3, James is trying to describe what a wise life is, which according to the Old Testament wisdom literature was basically a life that was well lived on earth under God. And this is the way he described a wise life. Um, he said, let them show it by their good life, by the deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure and peace-loving and considerate and submissive and full of mercy and good fruit and impartial and sincere. So that's James' description of what a good and wise life looks like under God for followers of Jesus. So that's for all of us. So the idea through the New Testament is that all of us are to show ourselves to be submissive kinds of people, to have a submissive attitude. So what does that mean? What does it mean to submit? What does that word actually have a connotation of? The word actually literally means to place yourself under someone else normally someone else in authority. So when there's a command to submit, whether it's to government, whether it's to um, masters of your slaves, whether it's to husbands for a wife, whether it's to um, church leaders if you're a church member, however the, the relationship is being described, the command is to voluntarily place yourself under someone else, kind of like in a servant-like attitude. Personally, I think the best way to understand submission, biblically, is to see it as an attitude or, an, or a condition of the heart. Because honestly, what it looks like practically can be so vastly different between different people. But what's, what's the key to it is an attitude. It's an attitude of humility and respect. And this really, I think, came alive for me as I looked back on my life in my late teens and early 20s. I'd grown up in the church, and in the church I, I was in during my teenage years, I ended up becoming the youth leader at about uh, 18 or 19 years old. And I led that youth ministry for a number of years as a volunteer, and through those years I clashed often with the leadership of our church. Um, I had very firm ideas about what we should be doing as a church. Some of those were good and biblical, um, some of them were stupid. But my problem was, in my zeal, I was incredibly arrogant. And over those years, um, during that time, as I look back on it now, as an older guy, I look back and realize that there was a real issue of pride 
uh, in my life and arrogance and a sense of, I know better than you. If you'd asked me at that time as a 19 or 21-year-old guy, was I submitting to the leadership of the elders of my church, I would have said yes. Because at the end of the day, though I disagreed with them, I ended up having to say, well, you know, okay, you're in charge and I'll go with what you want. But the truth of the matter is, as I look back on that now, I wasn't submissive at all. Because while I ended up going, okay then, whatever, the attitude of my heart was there was no way I was placing myself under their authority. Because I arrogantly thought they were a bunch of idiots. It's amazing what you can think when you're 19 years old, isn't it? And as I look back on on that part of my life now, I'm actually quite ashamed. I'm ashamed at the lack of humility and the lack of respect I showed. That doesn't mean that I should not have stood up for what I believed in. That doesn't mean I had no right to question some of the decisions they made. Of course I was free to do that. That's not what submission means. It doesn't mean you're quiet and you don't say anything and you don't ask hard questions and you don't offer a point of view. It's about the attitude of the heart. And I hate looking back on that period of my life now and realising the humility and respect that I think is at the heart of biblical submission was completely missing from my life in that era. And I think that's what's being called for here. Peter is saying to wives in the institution of marriage, wives, be submissive to your husbands, which I think is not actually aimed at particular behaviours as much as it is aimed at the attitude of the heart. Place yourself under them, serve them with an attitude of humility and an attitude of respect. In fact, I would underline the word respect. I think at at its heart, it's, it's the idea of respect that is most important when we come to marriage. In Paul's corresponding teaching on marriage, In Ephesians chapter 5, he teaches virtually the same kind of ideas that Peter does. And then at the very end of that section, he concludes and kind of wraps it up with this verse, this comment. In uh, Ephesians 5.33, he says, Each one of you, and he's just been talking in a long section to husbands there, so he says, Each one of you husbands must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And it only dawned on me a few years ago that, that while husbands and wives are equal in marriage, we have slightly different roles. A husband is called to love and a wife is called to respect. And I think that's the heart of the difference between men and women. And I think we're called to do those slightly different things because by doing that, we meet the deepest needs of one another in marriage. See, I think a guy's deepest need is to feel respected. In fact, there's some fascinating research out by a couple called uh, Shaunti and Jeff Feldon. I've quoted them before, so if you've heard this before, then just bear with me. But they've written a couple of books, a number of books now, but a couple of books early that I have found incredibly helpful for not only understanding marriage in general, but my marriage. I've come to understand Rochelle better by reading this book. I've actually come to understand myself better, which is quite a fascinating deal. But these two books are called For Men Only and For Women Only, and they're trying to explain to the opposite gender how your spouse operates. And Shaunti Feldon writes in her book For Women Only that's written for women to help them try and work out guys, 
She writes this. While it may be totally foreign to most of us as women, the male need for respect and affirmation, especially from his woman, is so hardwired and so critical that most men would rather feel unloved than disrespected or inadequate. And in fact, she is a sociologist and has surveys that back this up. I think it's more than 75% of the men she surveyed said, you know what, my deepest need is to actually feel like I'm respected. So I would actually rather feel unloved than feel inadequate and disrespected. And that, that resonates for me. Obviously, it doesn't resonate for every guy because it wasn't 100%. But it resonates for me and it resonates for the majority of men. Our, our primary need as guys is to feel respect. And I think that's what Peter and Paul and the writers of Scripture are driving for when they teach about marriage. They're asking wives to meet the deepest needs of their husbands as only you uniquely can by treating your husband with deep respect. I think that's at the heart of this call to submission. Now, what does that look like exactly? Well, that's a really hard question to answer because actually it looks completely different across all of the range of marriages that we just saw on the screen. How that works out in one marriage will look completely different to how it works out in another. How one couple makes decisions will look different to another couple making decisions. How one couple communicates and works through a disagreement will look different to how another couple does. And that's why I think it is much better to understand submission as an attitude of the heart more than anything else. Our reading on this, actually, I came across one um, female commentator, actually, uh, Dr. Karen Jobes, who, who wrote this. The church today is right to uphold a biblical order within marriage that mirrors the relationship of Christ and his church, but it should also follow Peter's wisdom and refrain from trying to specify what that must look like in every case. In other words, I think she's hit on it. I think she's trying to say, you, you look carefully at what Peter does, and Peter is giving principles that actually you need to work out in the unique context of your marriage about what that will look like. But what it's about is bringing this, this attitude of placing yourself under in humility and respect. Now, one of the key reasons Peter wants to do this, and this gets us into the context of this letter, is because some of the wives he's writing to, he's giving this command to all the women who are hearing this letter, but some of those wives are women who are married to non-Christian husbands. So they've come to faith in Jesus, but their husband isn't a follower of Jesus. And so what Peter is writing to them is, is crucially important. He's writing to them really about living out their faith at home. And he's saying this to them, for goodness sake, don't nag your husband. Don't wake up every morning and give him a Bible verse. All right, don't hang a Christian calendar on the toilet door so that every time he goes, he gets to see some words of Scripture. Don't harangue him about coming to church every Sunday. In fact, it's fascinating to me that most of the time in Scripture when we're called to share our faith, it's a verbal faith. We are called to use words to tell others about Jesus, but not here. You notice that? Did you see that as we read this? Verse 1. Um, so that if any of them do not believe the word, that's your husbands, they may be won over without words. 
They may be won over by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. See, what Peter's calling for is a general attitude of humility, respect, that within those homes where the wife is a believer but the husband isn't a follower of Jesus yet, that would have an impact potentially on him. Now, Peter's carefully uses the word may. So it's not a promise that if you're this kind of wife, then there's a guarantee that your husband will trust in Jesus. No. But it's saying this is the best way to win him. You see, and this is where it's important to understand the context of this. This passage on marriage is building on this overarching idea at the beginning of this section that we are to live good lives among those who don't know Jesus yet. And so Peter's taking that idea and he's applying it specifically to marriage. And he's specifically here applying that to those wives whose husbands don't believe yet. And saying, live this kind of life. Live an attractive and beautiful life at home through humility and respect that meets his needs in the hope that it may, no guarantee, but it may over time actually draw him to Jesus, the one who made such a difference in you. That's the idea behind it. And in fact, that idea of being beautiful is in fact the second kind of key idea that he goes to. Verses 3 and 4. This whole idea of don't let your beauty come from outward adornment. Rather, so there's a contrast, verse 4, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is great worth in God's eyes. I hear more these days, I think, more comments about um, women's beauty and recognising that a woman can be beautiful both inside and out. You know what I mean? I don't remember those kind of concepts or that idea being around as much when I was younger, but I feel like today that's talked about more. But in spite of that, we still live in a world, don't we, that it's all about how you look. And honestly, I don't know how you ladies cope with that because the pressure of the media and television, and advertising, and movies, and the whole marketing machine, really, what it's driving you, what the, the underlying message that I think is coming through the media and advertising is that actually it's not enough yet, you need to do more. And it's all centred around the outward appearance. And what I find fascinating is that is not a new issue. Because it feels like in Peter's day, there was this huge pressure to make sure that you looked amazing to everyone. That's why Peter's saying, hey, you know what? Your beauty shouldn't come from how amazing your hairstyle is and the wonderful jewellery you've got and how beautiful your clothes are. He's saying, actually, it's about your beauty within. That's, that's what makes you who God wants you to be. Now, we need to be really clear. God is not against beauty. All right? God is not against looking nice. But what this is reiterating is the, the, the idea all the way through the Bible that God is far more concerned with what's going on in the heart than he, than he is on the outward appearance or the image that we project. And the, and the story of King David uh, as a young shepherd boy being anointed to be the next king. God, talking to the prophet Samuel, rejects David's older brother with these words. Don't consider his appearance. Don't look at his, how tall he is. I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. 
but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what Peter's saying. And he's saying to wives, don't worry about that, that, that outer and trying to look amazing with your hair and, you know, concentrate on your inner beauty. Now, he's not saying let yourself go, who cares? He's not saying it's wrong to wear jewellery. It's not saying if you've got a hair straightener at home, shame on you, throw that away in Jesus' name. If you notice really carefully, verse 3 uses key adjectives. Did you notice that? When he's talking about hair, it's elaborate hairstyles. It's gold jewellery and fine clothes. He's going after the extreme of this, and he's going after the idea that this is the priority. So you're completely fine to wear nice clothes and jewellery, to put on makeup, to do your hair. The Bible's not anti that. In fact, that is how the amazing woman in Proverbs 31 that everyone goes, oh my goodness, I can't be like her, um, she wears fine linen and purple. That's her, you know, she's, she's the most excellent woman and, and she dresses beautifully. So the Bible's not anti any of that. All it's trying to say is that isn't the priority. By all means, blow dry your hair, put makeup on, wear nice clothes, get your husband to buy your lovely necklace on the way home from church. That's fine. <laughs> what it's saying is, actually, if you want to have an impact for God, especially in this context, if you're a believing wife whose husband isn't a follower of Jesus here, what's actually going to win him over is not how stunning you look. It's actually how beautiful you are on the inside and the way that comes out to everyone, but particularly to him in your marriage relationship. So be submissive and be beautiful. By the way, we were talking about this in our young adults group on Wednesday night, and it was fascinating just to talk about this with mostly single, young, younger men and women and kind of get their take on this passage. And it was interesting, a couple of the, the women in the group, when we got to verse 4, the unfading beauty of a Gentile and quiet spirit. And they were like, hmm, oh, that sounds that seem a bit wimpy. You know, like it's lacking a bit of oomph. And I didn't know how to answer that actually at the time, but I, I came away and I actually thought of this verse. This is probably one of my most favourite words to come out of the mouth of Jesus. About come to me and I'll give you rest. And he describes himself here. I am gentle and humble in heart. It's that description of himself that resonates for me as his follower. And all Peter's calling for here, wives, is that you'd be more and more like Jesus. That's the idea. That is beauty. So he says, be submissive, be beautiful. And then the final one I want you to hear is be strong. Because I think often we've given the wrong idea of what submissive means. It becomes this kind of limpy jellyfish, no backbone, don't say anything. And that's not what, what the Bible means at all. It's all about an attitude of humility and respect, but there is a strength with this. And Peter emphasizes this. In verses 5 and 6, he uses Sarah as the example of what this looks like, who even says, obeyed Abraham and called her my Lord. I was going to try this at home and see if Rochelle wanted to do this, but I'm, it ain't going to happen. Actually, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad Peter chose Sarah as the example, because if you read the stories of Abraham and Sarah in the book of Genesis, Sarah's feisty. Sarah sometimes gives Abraham the hard word. 
And I kind of like that that's the example that they've chosen here. But she is respectful. That's the point that he's bringing out. Now, you get to the end of that, the final sentence of verse 6. Have a look at it. You've got your Bible open. End of verse 6, Peter writes, You are her daughters. If you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now, what's Peter talking about there? Who would these wives be afraid of? Well, in the original context, especially the unbelieving, sorry, the believing wives who were married to unbelieving husbands, they may well have been afraid of their husbands. You see, the very fact that Peter is writing to these women is staggering. Because these women have decided to become followers of Jesus even when their husbands are not. And that was radical. In fact, that was almost undermining the norms of society. Around the same time that Peter lived, there was a Roman writer by the name of Plutarch. And he wrote this, A wife ought not to make friends of her own. (laughs) Sorry. She ought not to make friends of her own, but enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in. Now, I don't know too much about this era of history, but from what I've read, Plutarch was one of the most enlightened guys of his time. So, there you go. But see what he's saying? This is the culture that Peter is writing into. Wives followed their husbands' religious choices and did not go outside of that. Peter is writing to women who have broken that norm because they've come to faith in Jesus Christ as their true king. So what they've done by becoming a follower of Jesus is actually subverting everything that this culture knew. And so Peter is writing to those women especially and saying, have this attitude of humility and respect in the way you deal with your husband. But what he's saying now, verse 6, is but you do what is right and you don't give in to fear. Which means if your husband doesn't like you being a Christian, then you humbly and respectfully tell him bad luck. If your husband wants you to bow down to your household idols, you humbly and respectfully say no. See, that's what he's going for. He is going for Wives who are submissive, and meaning respectful and humble and beautiful and strong, who are saying, I am a follower of Jesus, and I am sorry, darling, but he gets my allegiance first, and you come second. And I will, I will respect you, and I will love you, and I will do, but sorry, I follow Jesus. Peter Davids, one commentator, Describes, puts, I think summarizes it this way beautifully. Here's the other side of submission. While calling for gentleness and tranquility overall and subordination to their husbands, he encourages them to stand firm in light of the hope in the coming Christ and quietly refuse to bow to the threats and punishments of their husbands. These are strong women. Submissive, beautiful, 
and strong, and they go together in a package. That's his word to wives. Right, husbands, you've been sitting there quietly. Well done. Our turn. Three ideas for wives, three corresponding ideas for husbands. Before we get to them, though, I want you to have a look at verse 7, guys, especially. Make sure you've got your Bible there. Look at the opening words of verse 7. Husbands, Peter writes, in the same way. Now, he's already used that phrase up in verse 1. So he's gone, uh, all of you submit to government. Slaves, submit to masters. Wives, in the same way, submit to husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate to your wives. And I think what we see in that is a beautiful balance of both equality and difference. This is the idea of that phrase. It means likewise or similarly. And because it's used of both wives in verse 1 and now husbands in verse 7, Peter is calling all of us to an attitude of other-centeredness. He is calling all of us to thinking about the other. But what it looks like in, in the space of wives is slightly different to the way it looks in husbands. Wives are called to submit. Husbands are called to be considerate. So the commands are slightly different. But the, the attitude and the idea behind them is the same. And so for husbands, we're called to have a similar idea. I think what's underlying all of this is the attitude that I think is most beautifully expressed in Philippians 2. In humility, valuing others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I think this is what Peter and Paul is calling all of us to do in marriage. Wives are to put husbands first. Husbands are put to wives first. Husbands are to think about their wives' needs. Wives are to think about their husbands' needs. We're all called to a selflessness in marriage. That's what it's about. It looks slightly different in the way they'll command that, but it's the same general idea. So for husbands, then, it is to uh, be considerate. It's a comment about selfishness. So what does it mean to be considerate? I want to explain it negatively and positively. Negatively, first of all, actually, I'm not going to explain it. I'm going to get Robin burned to. Where's Robin? Robin, come on up, mate. Robin's going to help me with this um, because I think this is the best way to capture what it means to not be considerate, what we would call inconsiderate. And uh, a few years ago, my son Harrison came across a song by a Christian comedian called Tim Hawkins. Um, It's called The Things You Don't Say to Your Wife. And I think just to really communicate to the gentlemen especially, to the husbands among us, I think this is probably the best way to describe negatively, this is not what being considerate looks like. This is inconsiderate, so to be clear, this is the stuff Peter is telling you and I not to do. All right? Thank you, Robin. Cool. Can I just make a disclaimer that I don't take any responsibility for the actions of your wives, guys, at the end of this song? We've got some guitar there, Rodney. some weight in your rear end The dress you wear reminds me of my old girlfriend 
And where'd you get those shoes? I think they're pretty lame Would you stop talking? Cause I'm trying to watch the game If you're a man who wants to live a long and happy life These are the things you don't say to your wife I plan a hunting trip next week on your birthday I didn't ask you but I knew I'd be okay Go make some dinner while I watch this wishing show I taped it over our old wedding video If you're a man who wants to live a long and happy life These are the things you don't say to your wife No, 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 no No, no, no Your cooking is okay but not like mother makes the diamond in the ring I bought you is a fake Your eyes look puffy dear, are you feeling ill? Happy anniversary, I bought you a treadmill If you're a man who wants to live a long and happy life These are the things you don't say to your wife No. You're a man who doesn't want to get killed with a knife And these are the things you don't say to your wife <laughs> Alright, are we clear guys? Did everyone take notes? I was going to ask for a show of hands but I thought that's not a good idea Ever done any of those? All right, so what does it mean? To be considerate means you don't do any of that stuff ever in your life. <laughs> but it actually means more than that. And just let me uh, describe this. I'm very conscious our time is gone because we started late because of technology, but I just want to wrap this and make sure the guys leave with what they need to hear, okay? All right, to be considerate. Literally in the Greek text, it actually doesn't say that per se. The NIV's translated it for us to help us understand it. Literally what it reads is this. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives according to knowledge. That's what it literally says. And most scholars agree that according to knowledge is not talking about knowledge of the Bible or knowledge of theology or life or generally or anything like that. It's knowledge of your wife. In other words, what Peter is saying is to be considerate, to be selfless, to put your wife above yourself, husbands, means that you live with her considerately. You consider her, which means you know her. It is a call to become a student of your wife and to know her intimately. Um, yeah, it means to be considerate. It means to be thoughtful. It means to be aware of what is going on in the heart and in the mind of your wife. It means to be considerate of her needs, of her ideas, of her dreams, of her hurts, of her fears, and to know her well. And that's the responsibility, Peter says, of every husband, to know his wife that 
well to that level of intimacy. Um, one pastor writing on this um, was talking about the fact that many, hus- uh, many men will say, I just don't understand women. And he writes uh, in response to that and says, you know what? A man doesn't need to understand all women. He needs to understand his wife. Husbands should be scientists with a narrow field of inquiry. A man should know the preferences and moods and needs of his beloved so he can love and care for her. And that means you need to continue, guys, to do that because the woman that you married, however many years ago that was, is different to the woman you are now married to because you've both changed over time. And so you need to become a student of her. I think the person who epitomized this best for me was Andy Bray, who passed a couple of months ago. What was fascinating is when Rochelle and I went to sit down and talk to Nikki a few days after he passed away, they had just managed to open up Andy's laptop. Um, There's passwords and stuff, and it took a little while to figure that out. Um, But when they opened up Andy's laptop and was looking through different things on there, they came across a spreadsheet that Nikki had never seen before in her life. But the spreadsheet was called Things That Please Nikki. And he had kept an ongoing spreadsheet of the kinds of things that made his wife feel cherished and loved. And it was a spreadsheet that apparently he was continuing to update through his life and marriage. Now that doesn't mean, guys, that you have to go home today and start a spreadsheet. I'm not a spreadsheet kind of guy. You know, Andy was, I'm not. But it's the example of intentionality in knowing his wife and wanting to know her so that he could love and cherish her. That's what Peter is going for when he says, be considerate. It's much more than not only taping over the wedding video, although you shouldn't do that either. It's knowing her so that you can minister to her and love her. The second part of what husbands are commanded to do, be considerate as you live with your wife. And then Peter says, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. The idea of treating her with respect is the idea really of show her honor, is what Peter literally wrote in the original text. It is honoring your wife. And so it kind of really doesn't work in English, but I've gone with it. It's not being an honorable man, which is great. It's being an honoring man in that you are the kind of husband that does everything you can to make your wife know and feel her worth. That's the idea. Because, Peter says, she is an equal partner with you in the gracious gift of life. He underlines the equality of husbands and wives and said, husbands, it's your job to make sure that your wife both knows her worth and feels her worth. And we can do that in multiple kinds of ways. We do that a lot through our words, both our words talking about our wives to others and and, and bragging on our wives and telling people how awesome the woman I married is, which is what the husband of the Proverbs 31 woman does in the Old Testament, but it's also praising our wives to their face and speaking words to them that affirm them and, and, and honour them. We honour our wives by giving attentive listening. 
and actually taking the time to listen to what's going on. We honour our wives by doing that and putting technology away and closing the newspaper and turning the TV off and giving her quality time. We honour our wives by engaging emotionally with them, which is sometimes hard to do when we don't even always have a good grasp of what our feelings and emotions are. But it's engaging with her. It is listening to her. It is asking questions of her. And it is sharing from our own hearts with her. And we honour our wives through physical touch and gentleness. Giving her a hug when she needs it with no other connotations. Holding her hand as we walk down the street. And never, ever raising a hand against her. I think that's what Peter is hinting at when he describes your wife as the weaker partner. Literally what he says is the weaker vessel talking about our bodies. And I think what he's saying is that your wife is more often than not physically weaker than you are. And I think personally, this is a subtle call of Peter to husbands to say never, ever, Use your physical strength against your wife. Don't you ever raise your hand against her. Don't you ever intimidate or threaten her. Don't you ever stand over her. And wives, if someone in our church, if a husband in this church ever does that to you, you call me. Because we will come down on that kind of behaviour like a ton of bricks. That is not honouring our wives. Why do we behave like this? Husbands, considering our wives, knowing our wives, honouring them, because this is what makes them feel most loved. Remember Ephesians 5, that summary. Our deepest need as guys is to be respected. Our wives' deepest need is to feel loved and cherished. This is the way that Shaunti Felden with her husband Jeff describes it in their book, For Men Only. It's no surprise they write, that women need to feel loved. What is a surprise is that buried inside most women, even in a great relationship, is a latent insecurity about whether their man really loves them and whether that relationship is really okay. It's just part of how, as I understand it, most women function. And that means men, husbands, are to know that and are to honour their wives to meet that continual need to feel loved and feel cherished and feel secure. Final one thing, then we're finished. It's almost an aside comment that Peter makes. You notice at the end of verse 7, do this, be considerate, show them honour, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I think Peter is making an assumption here that husbands will be praying for their wives and with their wives. I admitted last year when we did this whole preaching, uh, whole year focus around prayer that I've never been a good prayer. It's never been a strength of mine. Last year was actually quite life-changing for me personally and growing in prayer. But if I'm really honest, this is an area that, that I've struggled in to do a good job in, in our marriage, to, to lead in prayer with Rochelle. It's something I'm trying to do better. It's something I've felt really convicted about lately. But Peter's assuming, guys, that this is what we're doing. He's assuming that we are praying for our wives constantly. 
But I think he's also assuming we're praying with them. And my heart is that I think the vast majority of us aren't doing a great job of that. And I think there's a challenge here for us to do different with that. We finish this morning. What I want us to understand is that Peter is calling us to selfless marriages. He is calling on wives to place their husband's needs above their own, serve with humility and respect. And on the same token, he's calling husbands to place their wives' needs above their own and to know her and to consider her and to honour her in ways that make her feel cherished. And he's calling us to do this so that we are in marriages that thrive. But here's the kicker, and here's what I want us to finish with and for us to understand as we go. He is calling us to live these amazing, selfless, humble, married lives. But not simply so that we would have lovely marriages. Peter doesn't call us to these kinds of marriages simply because it's nice for us. And simply because it's great for our kids growing up in these environments, he's actually calling us to this as part of our evangelistic efforts to reach a lost community that needs to know Jesus. Because all of this is coming under this idea in chapter 2 verse 12, that we are to live good and beautiful and attractive lives before others. And that's the big idea here. That we are called to live humble and selfless marriages, not only because it's good for us and our relationship, not only because it's great for our families, but actually because your marriage and my marriage can actually be an attractive advertisement for the gospel of grace. And that takes our, the quality of our marriage relationship to a whole nother level, doesn't it? It's not only about the two of us. It's about a lot of other people who come into our home or see our relationship from the outside. And what Peter is calling for is wives and husbands who do such a good job of loving their spouse, of serving their spouse, of respecting their spouse, that those around us go, I want what they've that's the kind of life I want to live. That makes sense. Our time is gone, so I want to pray for us today. I want to pray for our marriages, for those of us who are married. I want to pray for any married couples today who are struggling, that, that God would come and strengthen your marriage by his spirit as you understand the, the importance of this. I want to pray for marriages in our church where one spouse is a follower of Jesus and the other at this point is not yet. And I actually want to pray for those of you who are single because as we're going to see next week, all of these character traits that we're talking about are traits that all of us are meant to cultivate whether or not we are married. So let's finish up as we pray. God, thank you for... Um, Man, this massive piece of scripture that at first hit kind of jolts us a little bit in terms of the culture we live in, but as we dive into it, we see the beauty and wisdom of your plan for marriage. God, I just want to bring you all of the marriages in our church here at Botany Life, both here at Botany, down in Hastings. God, I just bring all of us to you, every couple here, 
And I pray that you would be at the center of our marriages. Would you help both husbands and wives to lower themselves, to serve one another, to put the needs of their spouse above their own? Would you help us to really live out humble and selfless marriages? God, I want to pray for any marriages today that are struggling. Lord, it just isn't what all of the promise and the hope from that wedding day suggested. God, I pray that for those who are struggling in marriage, that they would get help, that they would work even harder, that they would pray like crazy, more than anything, that they would persevere so that their marriage becomes an advertisement of the beautiful gospel. God, I want to pray too for the people in our church who are your followers, but their spouses not at this point. I pray that they would be empowered by your spirit to live these kinds of lives in their unique environment. Help them to be humble and beautiful and selfless and loving in a way that that may draw their partner to you without nagging words. And God, finally, I want to pray for the future marriages of our church. Pray for those who aren't yet married, but for whom you have marriage down the track. Would you help our singles to be already developing these kinds of qualities as people themselves so that when you bring marriage along into their lives, if you do that, that they would already be mature and godly and Christ-like and live these kind of marriages. So we bring our marriages and our church to you today in your name. Amen. Guys, that is our service. Sorry we went over time. Those technology issues are frustrating, so we're not going to let Mark have another holiday uh, for the rest of the year. <laughs>